The Old Testament reading is from the book of Samuel. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guests who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that is born to you shall die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. He entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him, because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, he has gone to be with the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God, we need you. Would you be with us this morning in our worship? Would you be with us as we open your scriptures? And by your Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? Speak to our hearts. Shine your light in our darkness. Remake us by the power of your grace. And use this time, we pray, to build us up and to lead us in our journey of seeking to follow you and to grow in the likeness of Jesus. We ask all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. 
So this text is a little bit of a, is a hard one because of several reasons. One, um, for those of us who are familiar with the Bible and know the story, we know the situation of David and Bathsheba that uh, is the backstory before this story of Nathan the prophet coming to King David. Uh, also, as we get into the story, uh, we see that um, there are some pretty hard consequences that come here as a result of David's sin in this story. And, and these things can be triggering to many of us. They can be um, deeply problematic. They are deeply problematic. And so immediately as we come to a text like this, many of us, we get a group this size coming into the room. What we know is that we have a group that's gathered that's carrying a lot of pain and pain that prob probably is particularly touched on when you come across a story like this. And so I just want to acknowledge that right up front, that to listen to the voice of God through a text like this can be hard work for some of us. It can be, it can be painful work. And so um, I just wanted to name that and say that as we come to open the scriptures, uh, the God who speaks to us in them is the God of love who loves you deeply. The God who speaks to us in the scriptures is the God of justice a God who is committed to stand on the side of the vulnerable and the weak, the God who has promised to make all things new and wipe away every tear and take away everything that is unjust and to overthrow every uh, abuse of power and to set things right at the return of Christ. And the story that unfolds toward that end is a complicated one with a lot of ups, a lot of downs, a lot of heartache, a lot of... Uh, a lot of power abuse, a lot of carnage, victims along the way. And that's the story that we enter as we, as we open the Bible and we begin to read the story of the world and the story of God. It's headed toward the great promise of God making all things new. And it's a painful journey along the way that ultimately ends up with the crucifixion of God's own son, Jesus, who enters into the world that is ravaged by pain and brokenness and yet dies as the very Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who rises from it and into a new and glorious day and promises to bring us with him into that day. So it is in Jesus and with Jesus that we even open the scriptures to begin with and begin to reflect on a text like this and begin to ask the question, what is God saying to us today? So we're in this series of God with us, right? We're focusing on the presence of God. We've been doing this all year, and we've got, and so um, during the, the earlier part of the year, we were looking at this unfolding story of Israel and God's relentless commitment to be with his people. And we traced that story, uh, we called it the backstory to Christmas, right? The backstory to Emmanuel, when God, when God in Jesus stepped into the world in person in human flesh to be one of us, we, um, we celebrate at Christmas that is God with us in a new and incredible way in human form. Yet that wasn't the beginning of the story, right? The story goes way back farther. And so we spent a good part of the, the first part of the year tracing through the Old Testament story leading up to Jesus of God being with his people in all kinds of other episodes that would culminate in Jesus. And then uh, during the Lent season, we're shifting that focus and we're thinking about God being with us in different aspects of our own life different aspects of our own situation. And so this morning, we're thinking about God being with us in our failure. And failure is a hard thing to think about and to talk about. We often want to not 
see our own failure. Uh, when we experience failure, we would much rather point fingers at other people's failures usually than bring our own into the light to make them subject for discussion. And to be sure, this story has a little bit of both of those things, doesn't it? We get Nathan the prophet speaking truth to power. Nathan's job as a prophet is someone called by God to actually speak the truth to King David who has done wrong. And Nathan, with both love and courage, does just that. What is the story? I know we're, a, we're sort of an all-ages audience here. Um, the story is absolutely an R-rated one. The PG version is King David, um, who is to be the king after God's own heart. He's chosen as king because he's the shepherd king. He's not like the other people, right? He's not the king like Saul who came before him, who was the warrior king, the one who stood head and shoulders above everybody else. And when you look on the form of like, who stands out, you see Saul. But David, it says, God looks on the heart and sees David the shepherd, the one who knows his flock, the one who cares for his flock, the one who leads and protects his flock, the one who will, you know, if we were to backfill into the old story, things that Jesus says about a good shepherd, right? The one who will leave the 99 to go after the one who's lost. David is the good shepherd who becomes the king of Israel because that shepherd's heart reflects the very heart of God. And so that's who David is and is supposed to be. And he becomes king and he has some incredible triumphs and some incredible victories. We know the Goliath story. We know other stories of David's background. And then we get to this moment of his life and he's king and he's powerful and he's in his palace and his palace is up high looking down on the roofs of other houses in the city. And he sees a woman, Bathsheba, bathing and he decides that he wants her for himself and he's king so he can make that happen and he does he has her brought to him you can imagine how the story goes uh, it's a story of rape that becomes a story of murder around her husband who's out at war and there are a lot of other complications that are involved with that story but that's what the story is that's the backstory it's uh it's a profoundly evil moment in David's life. It's, a, it's an evil transgression and abuse that leads to a cover-up that then leads to a murder, and that's where we are. And David is there in this post-failure moment, and he's completely blind to the fact that he has become the very antithesis of the good shepherd that he's called to be and that he has essentially been. And then God sends Nathan the prophet to pay him a visit. And Nathan speaks the truth to David about David's life. And here we see the power of parable, right? We see Nathan tell a story. And what story does he tell? Have you ever been confronted about something in your own life that you weren't seeing clearly? What, what helps you actually recognize a hard truth about yourself? There are different things. One, I think in some cases, a relationship can be pretty important, right? That the person you're hearing it from is someone you know loves you, right? So it's sort of like what makes an intervention work. 
It's when you get a group of people, all of whom are known and loved and whose love for the person is obvious. And so when they come and say something that's the last thing they want to hear, it lands with a plausibility that would otherwise just be missed. I'll hear the criticism from you who love me and know me in a way that I can't hear it from someone who's just trolling me, right? So Nathan and David have a relationship. Nathan knows David. David knows Nathan. Nathan has played an important role in David's life before now. And now the job that Nathan has to play is, is this hard role of being the prophet friend to David who will come and speak with this bold, hard, loving, confronting message. So how to do it? Well, he's really good at this. He tells David a story and draws him in. And the story that he tells pulls on every heartstring in David's body and mind, right? It's, this, this is David the shepherd is told a story about a shepherd who abuses the flock. The one who, who lives into that vocation in a way that's harmful. That's everything a shepherd's not supposed to be. And David is along for the ride. Right? His, his moral compass around shepherding is actually not off. It's that he doesn't recognize that he has failed to apply that moral compass to himself. So this fictional shepherd in the story, David, hears it and he's like outraged because of the bad shepherd, because of the one who's abused the power. And he's gone along on the ride with Nathan and he's hearing the story and he's outraged. And then Nathan, in this very effective rhetorical move, says, David, you are the man. The one against whom your rage is kindled because you can see the evil. That's you. And David is cut to the heart. And he says, I've sinned against the Lord. And it's in that moment that we begin to recognize what it looks like when God shows up in our failure. And we see the scandalous grace of God at work. Because David has done real evil. He's right. He has sinned. Not only has he sinned against the Lord, he sinned against Bathsheba, right? He sinned against Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. He sinned against a lot of people. He's done a lot of damage. And there's a lot of collateral damage that happens as a result of David's self-indulgence and abuse of power, his grasping, his greed, his willingness to exploit other people for his own gain rather than to use his power for the good of others. And so there's a confrontation that has to happen with David and his power. And for many of us, I think this is where the story can kind of take two, two roads. And and there's a road where we kind of follow the Nathan track and we're like, yes, speak truth to power. This is an important thing, the prophetic role. How do we be good Nathans in the world? How does the church take up the prophetic role of like seeking justice and speaking truth to power? And that's a really important conversation. That's a really important calling for us to live into. For this morning's purposes, for our Lenten series about God being with us in our failure, Let's not take the Nathan track today. That's an important conversation. There's plenty to do there. We don't have time to follow every facet of a story. Let's take the David track. 
the God who shows up, not to help us point the finger more effectively, but to help us recognize you are the man, you are the woman, you are the person. We have sinned and God's mercy for you is in your own failure. God loves you to the depth of your being. God knows every single thing about your life and about your story. God knows every choice you've made. God knows every secret you've kept. God knows everyone you've hurt, everyone you've deceived, everyone I've deceived, everyone I've hurt. We have sinned and we are loved. Guilt works in our life in one way and shame works in another, but they both work really hard. Those of us who are prone more to guilt engage our failure as seeing it as a kind of debt that needs to be repaid, right? There's some, there's some balance where I'm in the red. The ledger is off. I've sinned, I've done damage. And there, how, what's, the, what's the number? How do I repay the debt? And some of us think that that number might be achievable and we spend our lives trying to pay it off with good works. Others of us recognize the number, there's no possible way to repay it. And we just spend the rest of our lives feeling that, that we're stuck. Shame works a different way. It's not about the ledger, right? It's not about the debt that's owed. Shame is more of a communal thing and it's not healed by way of paying off the debt. It's healed by the embrace when it's not that I've done wrong, but it's I am wrong. It's not I've been bad or I've done something bad, it's I am bad. I am unworthy because of what I've done or because of who I am, I'm unclean. The embrace of God for the shamed is the pathway to healing. The atonement that God gives to us in Jesus is the pathway for the guilty, we're both we're the guilty and the shamed. And for some of us, we feel one more than the other. But the good news for us is that the healing God extends to us in Jesus is both. That in Jesus, he has paid our debt. And in Jesus, he has embraced us in our shame. And in Jesus, he has met us in every deficit of our lives. And he meets us in the real space of our failure. And that as we're in that moment of encountering the thing that we've been blind to and we see the truth about ourselves that we spend so much energy on not seeing. God meets us in that space and we find that the presence of the Lord is even there in the shadows. It's even there in the deficit. It's even there in the damage. It's even there in our deception. God meets us in that place with the embrace of Jesus and says, come, follow me, receive me. Let me hold you, let me lead you, let me remake you, let me restore you, let me make you alive together with me so that this death isn't what defines you. And that is the tender presence of God who meets us in our failure. The challenge with that though, is that that's a really scary place to meet God. Have you ever been in a space where you're just exposed and you're in the presence of the person who has either exposed you or you are in the presence of people who now know something about you that you wish had never come to light? Have you ever had to look someone in the eye that you've hurt 
or hear from someone about how you've hurt them and you didn't even realize it and have to be in that moment and experience the pain of what it's like to be you at that moment. I remember one time, this was back in 2013, and my daughter had just been born. She was three months old, and my wife Bonnie and I were doing this church planting ministry assessment thing. Uh, And we were in there with seven other pastors from all over the country who had come together. Um, This was up, we were up in Brooklyn doing this thing. And and I was in a little bit of a different situation from some of the other pastors who were there because many, I, I was fairly content in the place where we were. I wasn't actively trying at that time to plant a church and trying to get approval for it. I wasn't actively seeking to go somewhere new. I was just trying to learn. I was you know, new and young and wanting to just get coaching, get, you know, go through a process. And so some of, many of the other pastors I was doing this with were in situations where they felt really stuck where they were and they really needed a change. Um, some were really, really, really wondering um, if they were going to stay in the ministry because they'd been so burned out or they, had, they were in contexts that were so toxic that they weren't sure if they could continue. And so they're there getting coaching and healing and all these things. And so we do this whole battery of assessments. You just learn all this stuff and you talk about yourself and you do these personality tests and you interview with these people and do all this counseling stuff. And I come out there and I'm, I'm thinking that I'm going to get coaching that's like, skill building or like we want you to we we want you to work on this particular area of leadership or you know preach better stop going on for so long or what you know learn how to be concise I know that's a weakness but you know what they told me something I was utterly unprepared to hear they're like you're not a very good husband and you need to work on your marriage I was like, what? Because in my mind, all of the things that make for a not very good husband were things that didn't really apply to me. But, it's like, but, they, but they're like, I was like, help me understand that. What does that mean? And they're like, you don't listen to your wife. Like there are all these things that she needs you to take care of. And, and you feel that these are just deferred maintenance stuff that can wait. But it's like, she doesn't feel heard by you. You're not listening. And that's not Okay. And so I'm thinking here, I'm going to get coaching on my preaching. And it's just and what I hear is, is like, you're, you're neglecting your wife. You need to go work on that. You need to show up and learn how to be a husband. And I was not prepared to hear that. And I needed to hear that. And I still need to hear that from time to time, right? Like, we need, we need to hear these things. But often the things we need to hear are the very thing we're not prepared to hear. And the reason is because we don't see what we don't see. We're blind to what we're blind to. And so we don't know what those blind spots are. And that moment of exposure, when we see it for the first time and it's exposed and we're met there in that space, can be really painful. Yet the experience of love and restoration in the midst of that, the invitation to transformation that can happen in that space, is so much more powerful than skill building or coaching that happens in a let's build on your strengths, right? It's the very place that feels most delicate. It's the very place where you feel stuck or weak or hopeless or helpless or broken beyond repair or unlovable or unworthy or untouchable. God is there and loves you there. 
and his embrace for you is there. And his invitation for you to know the grace of God and the newness of life in Jesus is there. But we don't want grace. This is the problem. We're dumb. I'm dumb. We don't want grace. Because grace is only received by way of surrender. <laughs> grace only comes to the undeserving. That's what grace is. I don't want grace. I want to be measured and found, found okay. I want, to, I want to pass the test. I want, you to, I want you to scrutinize my life and be like, yeah, great, that's, that's impressive, right? I want to be affirmed for being good enough, not just simply affirmed as a human who's worthy of love, but I want you to be impressed by me. The problem is there's no way to know grace if that's what you want. There's a parable that Jesus tells, right, of the... Um, the Pharisee and the tax collector, you've got these different kinds of prayers, right? You've got, you've got one whose prayer is, thank God I'm not like that other person. And you've got the one, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's the sinner's prayer that leads to that reception of Jesus, that knowing God in the midst of failure, that's actually the way to life. The thing is, it's a falling into God and finding life in him that can only happen as we're broken and recognizing that we have sinned against God and against our neighbor. Not just like in theory, but in reality. We've hurt one another. We've been greedy. We've been dishonest. We've prioritized our own self-gratification over taking care of other people. And so the grace that we need to know from God is a grace that meets us in the space of actually acknowledging those real things about ourselves. And the beautiful mystery of what happens when God meets us in our failure and begins to remake us in Jesus is that we begin to be able to show up like Nathan in a life-giving way in the lives of other people not as those who spend our time pointing the finger at all the wrong people who are doing it wrong, getting it wrong, and breaking the world. Like we're the good ones and they're the bad ones. Our world is so defined by that right now. It kind of always is, but that's like the, that is like the game that everyone plays right now. Is like there are good people and there are bad people. We're the good people. Point fingers at the bad people and let's fight. When you start as one who needs grace, and you can recognize your neighbor as one who needs grace. We start pointing the finger at Jesus, the gracious one, and saying we all need him. And the way we start speaking truth to power, the way we start showing up in the lives of, of, of one another and calling us back is not just to call us out, but to call us in. To actually move forward together in and with Jesus toward the future that God has promised to bring to fullness in him. There's one more story in the, in, in the Gospels that I have been thinking about 
Obviously, there's the Zacchaeus story that we just read that's so powerful where we see Zacchaeus discovering in Jesus a repentance that leads to life and a repentance that leads to reparations because he can recognize that he's participated in a corrupt world and has been extorting and greedy, greedy and he's, he's reversing his, the way that he lives into the world. That's a beautiful story, and I wish we had more time to explore it as well. But the story that I come to is the one where Pontius Pilate brings Jesus before the accused crowd. And in a very similar way to the way Nathan comes to David and says, you are the man. Pontius Pilate brings Jesus before the crowd, the accusers. And he says, behold the man. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Leap Over a Wall, bridges the gap between these two scenes in an incredibly powerful way. And I just want to leave you with this uh, to close. As he's talking about these two sentences, Nathan to David, you are the man, and Pontius Pilate of Jesus, behold the man. Peterson says this. These two sentences are alike and that they focus on a person at the vortex of the action. You, David, are the one. This Jesus is the one the human being in whom the actions of God are being worked out. It's not through an idea or cause or law or dream or vision or organization that we come to our senses, get our feet on the ground of reality, but in person, who I am, who Jesus is. The sentences are also unalike. Nathan's sentence brings David and therefore us to the brink of God. David realizes who he is not in himself, but before God. It's God with whom he has to do. The grammar renders him personal before God, honest, open, receptive. As participants in the story, we're enabled to be ourselves, our personal selves, before God. Pilate's sentence, in contrast, brings Jesus to the brink of who we are, revealing that it's me, you, with whom God has to do. God is personal before us, honest, open, receptive. This personal God is facing and taking care of my personal sin, making me right with God. This is the hard to believe but impossible to refute good news, that the place of sin is a place not of accusation or condemnation, but of salvation. The gospel comes into focus here, not in an accusation, but as recognition and invitation. Recognition, I'm the one whose sense of sin arouses a sense of God. Invitation, Jesus is the one who presents God to me. I didn't know God was that close, that kindly, that inviting, and brings me into personal relationship with him in love and salvation. I am the one who needs God more than anything more than pleasure with Bathsheba, more than control over Uriah, God. And Jesus is the one who brings the God I need to me. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for Jesus and, and the scandalous grace with which you embrace us even in the depth of our own participation in evil and brokenness, even in all the ways that we opt out of the goodness of what you're doing in the world. 
Thank you that you are a God of love and mercy. Thank you that you love us, that you have sent your son Jesus to be the, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That you have met us in our guilt and paid our debt. That you meet us in our shame with your embrace and your light. Even as we run into the shadows, you find us there. God, would you have mercy on us and lead us out into the light of your presence, into the light of dwelling with one another, and into the way of life everlasting as followers of Jesus who put on not the deathliness of life away from you, but the resurrection power of life with you. Thank you that you meet us in our failure. Give us the courage to listen to your voice as you meet us there. We ask through Christ our Lord. Amen.